Welcome to episode 254 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Christian, Susan, Mary, and Heather. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Christian, Susan, Mary, and Heather for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Joining me today are Ellen and Mary. Welcome to the podcast studio. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Ellen, I think you brought us a reading. Yes, this is from The Courage to Change. It's uh, February 17th. My vision can be so limited. I often think that the only possible outcomes are those that I can imagine. Fortunately, my higher power is not restricted by such logic. In fact, some of the most wondrous events grow out of what appear to be disasters. But faith takes practice. Fear can loom large, and I can get lost in my limited thinking. When I can't see any way out and I doubt that even a higher power can help me, that's when I most need to pray. When I do, my actions demonstrate my willingness to be helped, and time after time the help I need is given to me. Today I know that even when my situation looks bleak and I can't see any way out, miracles can happen if I turn my will and my life over to God. Today's reminder, I have an important part to play in my relationship with my higher power. I have to be willing to receive help, and I have to ask for it. If I develop the habit of turning to my higher power for help with small everyday matters, I'll know what to do when faced with more difficult challenges. In the hour of adversity, be not without hope, for crystal rain falls from black clouds. I really like that, that reading with regards to the topic that I've, I've asked you here to talk about today. We're going to talk about your experience as a parent of a teenage addict or alcoholic. So why don't we start uh, with a little bit of your story, Mary, if you'd like to start. Okay. I have one son. He's our only child, and he was living a pretty charmed life, and <laughs> he uh, started showing signs of using drugs and alcohol when he was in ninth grade. He was 14 years old. At first, I thought it was just experimenting, and then... I realized when I we found him, my husband found him smoking pot in the backyard by himself, that that might be the uh, flag that he is really struggling. We've seen addiction and alcoholism in both of our families. We've seen it take people really just ravish their lives. What happened was I kind of flipped out. I went after him. I was following him around. We were looking at every text message sent. We hovered over him to the point that it was just insane what we were doing 24-7. We were trying to stop our son from using drugs and alcohol. Great. How about you, Ellen? What, what What's your experience that brings you here? 
Well, my experience is pretty similar to Mary's to a large extent. I have two sons, and it's my older son who is the alcoholic. Also, when he was in ninth grade, actually it was, well, he too was sort of leading, I would say, the charm life. He was doing pretty well and, you know, through elementary and middle school and, you know, he had a good group of friends and he was a soccer player. But right before he started high school, there was a party in our neighborhood and he and the friend that he brought with him were caught bringing alcohol to this party. And at the time, I was just so sure that this was a problem uh, with his friend. You know, and I just remember sitting around the, with uh, he and his friend around the dining room table talking about his friend <laughs> and how to approach his friend's parents. It did not even cross my mind that it, that this could have been my son's problem. Then in his sophomore year of high school, things started to get worse and he had a party at our neighbor's house, you know, right under our noses. <laughs> But denial can be a really powerful thing. So once again, I was pretty sure that this was because he had made the varsity soccer team and now he was being influenced by all of these, you know, seniors on the soccer team. Then finally in his junior year, I actually stumbled upon a wouldn't stumble like Mary. I was, you know, actively engaged in trying to find out what was going on. So I looked through. I did not stumble upon. I looked through his backpack and I found a piece of, it was something from a class in which classmates were sort of reacting to a presentation that he had done about himself. And it was heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking for me to see what they saw in terms of his his alcohol and drug use. And that's when I, I went to, started to go to Al-Anon. So that was in uh, January of 2009. Mm-hmm. So, okay, your kids are a little bit younger than mine. They, they graduated in 2009 from high school. But mm-hmm. I, I, I understand the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You both talked a little bit about becoming aware or the incident that kind of brought it to your attention. And Ellen, in particular, you talked about the denial that each of those felt like sort of a one-off thing or something that somebody else was bringing your kid into. When, when or how did you start to break that denial? Well, I, I broke it through Al-Anon. I, I don't know that I could have withstood the pain that, that that awareness brought if I didn't have a circle of support around me. So for the first, at least the first year, I don't recall exactly, I would come to Al-Anon meetings and I would not say that my son is an alcoholic. I would say that my son was abusing substances, including alcohol. And, you know, mind you, I'm a social worker and I worked in an alcohol and, you know, drug treatment center. So I understood that alcohol and, and drug addiction are, that it's a disease. I did not have any, that wasn't hard for me to understand that it's a disease. What was hard for me to get and accept was that my son had this disease. Mm-hmm. So I, I kept asking him to, 
you know, do what he couldn't do, which is, you know, stop using. I, I kept trying like a l- lots of different strategies, drug testing, getting a breathalyzer. I see Mary's nodding her head too. Mary, how did you start to see, come to understand that your child was probably addicted to alcohol or other substances? When did that come to you? After we had first found out about his use through friends, and he was using alone at our house. And for me, that threw a flag for me. But then we had done the drug testing and put down a rule in our house that if he tested positive for smoking pot, he could not drive our car. I sent him off to a camp that my brother ran. It's a Christian fellowship, actually, out of Detroit. And he went there, and I thought it it was going to be fine. You know, he was going to be there. He's going to be amongst all these great people who who love him, and we're going to take care of him and stuff. But he came home, and he didn't. He asked to use the car, and I I put in my automatic kick in to do the drug test, and he t- test he lit up. So I knew that he was using at the Christian camp, and I thought, oh boy, if he's using there, you know. And then I was having trouble figuring out if he was an addict or if he was just in love with the drug culture. Sure. He had a girlfriend, and she had bought him some really nice stuff for his birthday, and then I thought, well, Christmas was coming up. So I gave him some money to buy her a Christmas present. But instead, he bought a scale from Amazon and had it shipped to our house. Yikes. And we sent the scale back. (laughs) That's about the time when I I was becoming unglued. People at work were saying, you might need some help. So you had not yet come to I had not come to Al-Anon yet at this point. I'm really struggling. I'm talking to a friend of mine whose son was mixed up with heroin. I'm like, how are you functioning every day? And she said, well, have you ever heard of Al-Anon? And then at the same time, somebody that I worked with, his wife called me and said, I want to take you to an Al-Anon meeting. So I went to one on Saturday morning at King of Kings. That was my very first meeting. And they told me that I, I didn't cause it. I couldn't control it. And I wasn't going to be able to cure it. And I was like, it felt like a big thing of uh, rocks was lifted off my shoulders because I was, I was really trying, trying. It was finally somebody said, you know, stop trying, just stop doing what you're doing and, and take care of yourself. When we got to UMATS, which was our second attempt at therapy with our son and his behaviors, they told us that he needed to leave the house because it was it was too awful the way we were set up. You know, I was trying to control everything, and he wasn't allowing that to happen. And because of his addiction and his drug use, he was really – I mean, he was swearing and would combat us, my husband and I. And he was 17 at this point? 17. Well, he was – yeah, he was 17 at this point. So it was Easter break. The psychiatrist told us that we were done raising him at 17 and that he needed to leave. He needed to leave our house. I could get him a room somewhere, but he couldn't live under our roof anymore. And um was that for him, for you or for both? For both, I think. It was it was ugly. It was really ugly. That I I wow. 
I I hadn't heard that kind of advice before. Right. So we put them out. We put, we actually I should have. I mean, hindsight being yeah. what it is. Sure. But I I actually put him up in an apartment about a mile from our house for his sen- the rest of his senior year uh, from spring break until the school year ended just to get the chaos out of our house and to start putting up some boundaries. I didn't know what boundaries were, you know. Mm-hmm. So once we we put that physical boundary up that you can't come over unless we invite you in, we changed the locks on our doors because things started to we're starting to leave our house, mm-hmm. you know. Once he was out there in the world, letting the world beat him up a bit in his new lifestyle, it only took until thanks from Easter to Thanksgiving for him to come to us and say, I need help. I don't want to live like this anymore. Wow. Okay. So, so that kind of worked for him. To ask for help at that point, I guess. It worked to get him to the point where he said, I, I want help. Yeah, it made him realize from within that there was a problem. He he actually left the state to go for treatment, and he owed somebody a lot of money, and that was maybe the main motivation the first time he left. And he went there for uh, a, a treatment center, you know, wilderness treatment center, mm-hmm. for 60 days. He came back. Well, actually, he went from there, they told us he needed to be at least two years away and two state lines away if he had a chance of recovering. Hmm. So he went to a recovery community in a different state, and he was there for 18 months, and he came back to Ann Arbor, and within six months, he relapsed. We yeah. made him—we stopped paying for his school and his apartment— and I worked with a therapist to do this. And the whole time I'm going to Al-Anon mm-hmm. and I'm learning how to, you know, that what enabling looks like. If I was paying for the rent on the apartment and he was using in that apartment, that meant I was actually enabling his drug use because he didn't have to go out and make a living to survive. So when we mm-hmm. stopped paying the rent, the lease was up and we just stopped. He was without support for about a week and a half or so. And he went back to his recovery community on his own. He asked for gas money to go, and we paid for that. And he's been clean and sober ever since, and that was over five years ago. Okay. Yeah, Ellen, now that we've heard more of Mary's story, how does your experience line up or not line up with that? Well, it dovetails a little bit with it, for sure, because we, too, had our son in therapy at first, not specific to substance abuse and addiction, but just because of all of the behaviors that happen that are a part of the disease, the lying, the breaking, you know, house rules, the argumentativeness, the, you know, oppositional behaviors. He was actually in that time diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. So again, this just continues to, through these couple years, to feed my denial about what was going on. But eventually, so there, there are two ways. Well, there's there were many ways. Through, so through Al-Anon, not only did I come to accept that he had this disease, but I also came to recognize my own enabling behavior. And there were several ways that that manifests itself. One was that I was really attached to having him graduate from high school. 
I grew up in a family where education was really highly valued and expected. You were expected to go to, you know, finish high school and go to college. So that was really important to me. So that kind of got in the way of accepting what was really happening. So did he graduate high school? He did graduate high school. But right before he graduated, because, of course, the ADD medication didn't fix the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Go figure. Yeah. We did eventually get him into UMATS also. And and I'm sorry, what's that acronym? University of Michigan Addiction Treatment Services. So we got him there, although, and what that that helped uh, us to get on the same page for the most part. My wife, his other parent, and I. I think we needed that because for a time, you know, one of the things that Al-Anon helped me do was to stop picking up the rope. So, right, this was the other way that I was enabling People who live with an alcoholic understand that you can try to have a conversation or start a conversation about something, and it can be completely deflected and turn around so that then you become the problem. You know, that would happen over and over and over again, where I would pick up the rope, as we call it. He'd throw something out there. I would react to it. And then suddenly it was all about, you know, me and, you know, my faults and what I was doing wrong. So there's this metaphor in in the literature of a tug of war. Yes. It takes two people. Right. And if we can put down the rope or not pick up the rope, then we can stop that that particular behavior. And as you say... Also, I think it says in that same reading, which if I'm remembering correctly, it's in our book, How Al-Anon Works, on page 30. I've had to go back to that one a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. Also, as you point out, that the alcoholic throws out the rope or the addict throws out the rope to distract us. Right. And we're like, oh, that, got it. (laughs) Well, what I will say is it's really hard as a parent to not pick up that rope. And I, I did. I, I was learning how to put it down, and I'll never forget the one, the first time when I don't know he threw something out, probably about can I go out tonight? And my reaction was, well, I, I don't want to have this conversation right now. I'm going to go read my Al-Anon literature. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of like that, but it can look an awful like, and it and it did to my spouse an awful like, like an awful lot, like I stopped parenting. Okay, so I want to actually stop at this point because one of the questions that, you know, I get emails from people and they're like, okay, you're always talking about parents or spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, but it's my kid. And I feel like I have responsibility for my kid, that that I'm in charge of them and that I'm responsible for their behavior. And I'm hearing you say that you felt this or that your spouse was feeling this. How do you take this Al-Anon detachment, not picking up the rope, not trying to fix, not trying to control, when it's your minor child who's you know still still in your home? And I and I heard from Mary. Well, you were actually advised by the professionals to get him out of your house, and that's one way to that expression. You're done parenting, like you've done the parenting that you can do. How did that feel when you heard that? Horrible. 
I I was like, what? No, I'm still in charge of this person. You know, I'm going to make sure that he's cleaned up and ready to go to college, and he's going to be, you know, everything that I expected him to be when he was an infant all the way up to that point. And I didn't want to accept that I was done parenting. Um, But at the same time, I was being told, you need to take care of yourself. Uh, this has uh, pretty much floored you. You're starting to decline in the way that you function. And, you know, I had to, like, first things first, put the oxygen mask on myself before I could be of any use to anybody, including my son. And I have to say that not all of the health professionals were in agreement on, <laughs> on that tactic because later on that year, the summer that my son was out, we worked with Ron Harrison, and he was shocked that someone in his profession would tell us to uh, set our son up in a separate living quarters. He said, basically, what you did is you set up a drug den for Ann Ann Arbor. (laughs) (laughs) And he did not agree with what, uh, what they were telling me from before. He was the person who actually got my son to agree to go to treatment, and that was when his lease was going to be up on this apartment. He owed people money. He wasn't feeling well. His 18th birthday was coming, and we had always drilled it into his head, when you're 18, we're done, you know, when the behavior started getting bad. He knew that it was getting close, and he wasn't going to be able to support himself. And my husband actually told our son he could pay for one more month of rent if he would agree to go talk to a therapist. So that's how we got him to talk to Ron. Mm-hmm. And Ron is the person who convinced him to go off to the Wilderness Treatment Center. Yeah. So how how did you feel with this? This is my child. I'm responsible. What well, was overwhelming? The fear was pretty overwhelming. And I'll, I remember just feeling huge relief when he turned 18. I want to talk for a minute, though, about, you know, detachment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so one of the things that led me to Al-Anon was, so what happened to my fear was that it really, it turned to anger and resentment. You know, that constant picking up of the rope was hardening my heart toward him. Mm. And that was extremely, and I think that that's a hard thing. I mean, I, I say that. Just because I think it's hard to talk about how how you can start to lose track of the love for your child, that this disease can really, the power of the disease, I lost track of that. And that, that was a, another sort of, that was a, the, a, my pain that brought me to Al-Anon. And, um, and I think that learning how to lovingly detach I think all that anger and all that fighting was part of the enabling process, the distracting that I said, that I, I talked about. At some point, he ended up in outpatient therapy at Dawn Farm, and I don't remember how that happened. <laughs> he turned 18 and graduated from high school. He did one year of college at, at Washtenaw Community College because, of course, because of the disease, he didn't get it together to apply anyplace else. His grades had deteriorated and all of that. But he flunked out of his first term at Washtenaw. And that's when we were, were able to sit down with him. And I'll just never for, forget, you know, that 
session in at the Don Farm Outpatient where we were both able to say in a really loving way, we love you and we can't support you anymore. We're not going to pay for school. We're not going to pay for an apartment. This decision now is in your hands. If you decide to go to treatment, we will absolutely support you for that. It was really hard to watch him struggle, but then it wasn't because because it wasn't out of anger, because it was really in a very loving way. It, it wasn't about me anymore. It was me letting go, recognizing finally that he has to make this decision on his own, that I, I I can't do that for him. I couldn't do that for him. And I'm very grateful, number one, that Al-Anon helped me get to that place. And then number two, that he, he made the decision then to go into treatment himself. Yeah, and he'll be uh, in recovery. So he went in January of 2011, right? Two years after I started Al-Anon. And do you think you you could have done that without no. the support of the Al-Anon program? No. I felt so alone and a lot of shame throughout the those years, those high school years, and until I got into Al-Anon. You know, all the other parents in the community talking about where their kids were going to go to college or the whole application process, all of that, and kind of all the euphemisms that get, you know, well, my son just needs a little bit longer to find his, I, I don't, you know, there just was not a way to say, like you could say if he had cancer, my son's struggling with cancer. He needs to go through treatment. He's not ready to apply to colleges or whatever, you know. But in Al-Anon, I could say, my son's struggling with alcoholism. And people there get also that it's, I mean, Mary's story and my story right now, we're in a place of, you know, gratitude and, you know, our sons are in recovery, but that's not always the way it works out. Yeah. Yes, I know. Yeah. I have some friends in the program who are struggling with adult children who are still in addiction, right. still in active alcoholism. How did you get to Al-Anon? I think Mary had friends who said, you, you, sh- you should do this, or a friend who actually dragged you to a meeting. That's correct. I, I'm going to say dragged. Is dragged the right word? Or um, no, just encouraged? I was, I was so lost at that point. I, I actually, you know, I was talking to my friend, and I'm like, what? Is there any kind of support for parents? What about the parents? I'm miserable. I don't know what to do. And that's when she said, have you ever heard of Al-Anon? And it just so happened that around that same time, somebody invited me or strongly suggested that I join her <laughs> at an Al-Anon meeting. Mm-hmm. There were other people who saw me struggling. Like I went to lunch with somebody who talked to me about how Al-Anon had actually given her a lot more stability and strength than a therapist at the time. Yeah, walking into Al-Anon, and the first, I went there for about a month, and then I didn't go back. And then when my son got into treatment, at the treatment center, they had family week, and we, we the parents or grandparents or whoever brought their young person to the treatment center, we sat around and had Al-Anon meetings mm-hmm. uh, while they were off doing their thing. 
And once that happened, I came back and I haven't stopped going. I, I make sure that I'm at an Al-Anon meeting at least once a week. Uh, unless it's tennis season, but um, <laughs> but if I'm not at a meeting, I'm I'm reading literature, or I'm talking to somebody, so that I'm always my recovery has to come first. Otherwise, I'm I'm of no use. <laughs> so I want to bring it back to you, Ellen, because I think I still didn't hear how how you actually ended up in an Al-Anon meeting. Yeah, well, I of course you know having worked in the field, I was completely aware of Al-Anon, mm-hmm. but I was spending an awful lot of time at my job researching, you know, like wilderness treatment centers and all of these kinds of things that parents often do end up sending their children to and getting in touch with an actually an old social work friend of mine who was working in that program. Her husband was also the person that you can call who will transport your kid to. So I was doing all of this stuff while I was working. Fortunately for me, a colleague of mine, her son was also an alcoholic, so she suggested Al-Anon to me, and it was great. And I I went to the Wednesday night just for today Al-Anon meeting, that first Wednesday in January. The format of the meeting back then was that they were going to do one step every week. So it was great because it was the first Wednesday. It was the first step. And I, I thought, well, that's wonderful. I can just, I can, you know, I can commit to 12 weeks. <laughs> and yeah, nine and a half years later. <laughs> yeah, 12 there. steps, 12 weeks, I'll be done. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. You talked about how people in the rooms, as we say, yeah. people in the meetings understand. Yeah. Did you get that also, that feeling, Mary? I did, Yeah. I remember sitting there in a in a person at my first meeting shared that her son had just gone through and this was before my son was even thinking about doing anything and she talked about how he, he had been using drugs and went to treatment on a, you know at his on his own accord and how things were going for them and I thought wow you know there are there are happy stories in recovery and I just uh, was surprised, you know, I because I, I thought I have worst-case scenario disease pretty bad, and I just thought this is the end, this is it, you know. But then I started hearing the hearing around the table about other people who were more advanced sharing their experience, strength, and hope, and it did it did put a little crack in my darkness that day. So crack in the darkness, mm-hmm. I like that. A little bit of light coming in. A little bit came in that day, yeah. We talked about what you found in meetings, but I, I'm going to guess you also spent some time talking with other parents one-on-one. Did you find help there, or support, ideas, shared experience? Yes, I joined an AWOL group, which is a, a way of life. So it was a small group. Yeah, it was about, a, it was a, well, actually, going back, I did get a sponsor. I got, a, the first thing I did was to get a sponsor. And I chose my sponsor in part because she was, um, in addition to being a spouse of someone with this disease, she was also the mother of someone with this disease. So, yeah, that was important to me because it really is hard. One of the things I learned right away is that, I mean, there are there are certain aspects to being a parent that are unique because you are, in fact, you are legally responsible for your child in a way that you're not necessarily legally responsible for your spouse or your parents. That said, 
the intense feelings that I was feeling, you know, the fear, the shame, the anger, the powerlessness, all of those things are true for anyone who's in a relationship with someone that they love. It is painful to watch somebody that you love struggle with this disease. And that was another gift to Al, you know, when I talked about, you know, needing those two years to really accept that my son had this disease meant that I had to accept that not only was, I mean, I was coming to terms with, well, maybe I am powerless over this person, but really he was powerless. He was not a bad kid. People talk about good kids. Oh, you know, so-and-so is a good kid. And it, it, as if, the struggle as if as if there are bad kids i mean you know people don't necessarily say bad kids but if you go around talking about oh he's a good kid meaning he's a good student he doesn't get into trouble he you know follows the rules blah you know it implies that those who don't are somehow bad and the truth of the matter was my son was suffering as much if not more than i was suffering. He, when I, finally I realized that he, he had no control, and my efforts to, to help him, to quote unquote fix him, were communicating to him that he should. I was asking him over and over to do something he could not, and so expecting him to do what he could not do, and actually, I learned that 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 came to me in a meeting through a woman who was actually talking about her husband. She was not talking about her son, but she was she was giving a lead about coming to realize that her efforts to help and fix were actually communicating that and ex- expecting him in her case to to do something he could not do and was communicating basically you're a failure. Mm. And what do you do when you get that message, right? Right. right. Does it does it help you Get out of whatever's going on? Yeah. Probably not, huh? I had heard from a friend at work who was dealing with a child who was not mainstream. Mm -hmm. And she told me, stay away from those perfect parents, the parents with the perfect kids. Just, you know... Don't don't even subject yourself <laughs> to those conversations, you know. And that, that's where Al-Anon became a place where I could actually yeah. open up and share and talk and and not have to dance around that conversation around. So where where's your son going to college? Right, exactly. Um, well, it he just, needs a little more time to find his path, right? Or, <laughs> Whatever you want. He's figuring oh, yeah. it out. You know? <laughs> I, I remember a friend of mine, I think, came into the program about the same time I did. Although I came in for my wife, she came in for her her son, expressing exactly the frustration, I think, with that, that situation. All of her f- son's friends were having graduation parties, and and everybody's talking about what college their kid's going to, and, 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 and what about your, your kid? And well, uh, <laughs> you know, and I don't remember, I just remember her talking about it being painful, it being really painful, but that in the meeting there was a place where she could talk about that and that we understood. What 
tools did you find that you learned in the program that you ended up using that were really hard? Apply in. I mean, you talked about some of the easy stuff, right? Oh, and I like, don't know. What was well, easy? Okay. What did I Maybe say not. Okay. Easy? Okay. <laughs> it didn't seem easy to me. Okay. It all felt difficult. But, you know, Mary talked about, you know, we didn't cause it, right. can't control it, can't cure it. So that was like the first layer of that was hard to get over the guilt. Like, I remember thinking, well, you know, because he's got two moms, you know, maybe maybe that's why this is happening or, yeah, not having a male role model, you know. So the whole ca- cause or feeling right. responsible right. for it, that was hard. And then um, we talk about the three A's to awareness, acceptance, and action. And I, I think I just kind of talked about it. it's one thing to be aware, and then we usually jump to action. And that was, you know, I was aware there was a problem and my action was to keep asking him to do something he couldn't do. The hard part in those three A's was the acceptance, was really coming to accept him for who he is, which, yeah, acceptance and love. I mean, that's the, for me, that's the part of the spiritual aspects of of the program. Getting to acceptance through the fear, is that part of what I hear you saying? Like the fear that... Your your kid is not going to succeed at life or something. Is not is I'm put I'm trying to put words in your mouth and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I might be able to throw in on this. One of the hardest things for me to come to terms with was that I was not my son's higher power. I was not the person that was going to make it all right for him, mm-hmm. and it was really hard to let go of that perception that I that was my job. Mm-hmm. To make everything work so that he, you know, was going to be this successful person who went to, a, you know, a Big Ten college. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was really, it was difficult to let go, let God. I had a magnet on my fridge that said, let go or be dragged. And, you know, it was just <laughs> hard to, you know, that to let go and trust that a power greater than myself, which I had not defined yet, was going to make everything okay. And I had to let go of the, and I had to accept the fact that my son was on his own journey. He had his own higher power and that I had to have faith that what I was doing with my higher power was the right thing for me, and what he was doing with his higher power was the right thing for him. Just detangling was really difficult for mm-hmm. me. Right, figuring out yeah what you are and are not responsible for. I think, and I think that's what I hear from people who write. It's like I feel responsible. Mm-hmm. How do I how do I let go of this responsibility because it's my kid? Right, right, but the. The, the real truth is you are power you're powerless you can't save your kid that's where faith comes in that's why I love that I held on to that just that saying faith takes practice and it's a practice I you know I lose faith every day and then I come back to practice having faith every day and what is that faith that you're practicing well at at first, the very first faith that I started practicing was faith in the program, was faith in Al-Anon. I just knew that what I was doing was not working. To this day, I don't know, you know, 
what went into my son's decision to get treatment. That was, that's be, like Mary was saying, that's sort of between him and his higher power, and that's his path. What I know is that my faith in the program helped me get out of his way. Right. So that's, you know, if I had any part of this, my part was recognizing where I was in his way and getting out of the way. And we're not, I mean, in our, you know, we are enculturated or whatever to be in the way. I mean, we, I am the parent who, you know, was looking at grades and was, you know, got the extra soccer practices and spent the money on the ACT, whatever practice things, you know, mm-hmm. over and over we're told, you know, we need you to do these. Yes, things. exactly. Yeah. You probably have have heard me talk about this experience with my my kid before. They were in college, sophomore year of college. Well, it goes back a little bit. In high school, their senior year of high school, they started experimenting with hallucinogens. We said, we are not in favor of you doing this. Would you consider not doing it while you're living in our home? And, And the kid basically said no. And we had this conversation. My wife had this conversation. She had the the courage to have that conversation. I'm the one who shies from difficult conversations, right? Why did this kid pick acid for their first drug? Aside maybe from alcohol, there undoubtedly had been some alcohol involved somewhere along in there. I, I, I have no doubt. Well, LSD is not addictive. And we'd been telling the kid, the kid since my wife got into treatment, look, you've got this in your genetics. You need to be careful. You need to be aware that this could happen to you. Well, okay, I'm going to take something that's, quotes, not addictive. <sighs> okay, so sophomore year of college, the kid is um, is hearing voices. I don't know exactly what was happening, but they ended up, they had broken up with their girlfriend like a few couple months earlier or something, but I, I clearly had not gotten over it and ended up texting to them, I feel like I want to either kill myself or you, which she paid attention to. You know, called the authorities, uh, campus people, and and our kid ended up in a psych ward, danger to self or others. You know, the place where they take away your toothbrush after you brush your teeth so you don't hurt yourself with it, right? I had to go down there to Arizona to receive them out of the out of the psych ward. They did not want to let them out with nobody to to take care because they'd been suspended from school. They couldn't go back on campus, which is where they were living. So they had no place to go. If they let them out, they were going to be on the street, right? So I went down there, and, and I really didn't think I knew what to do. This was not a, not a situation I had trained for, right? I, I said, I, I went to the Wednesday night meeting that, before I flew down there, and, and I said, look, if, if, you know, if this kid was in rehab, I think I'd know what to do, but I don't know what to do in this situation. Mental illness, well, it's, you know, it's, they're all mental illness, right? But so I went down there and got them out. And it, what I had learned in Al-Anon about like enabling, about not doing for our loved ones what they can do for themselves. So it turns out I did know what to do. At least it seemed like it. I provided a place to live. You know, we got a hotel room. I provided food. Because they ate on campus. They were not allowed on campus. They'd be arrested if they went back on campus. And I provided transportation because the kid didn't have a car. Didn't even have a bike, I think, because, you know, they lived on campus. They walk everywhere, right? 
and was with them while they dealt with getting readmitted to school, while they received a restraining order from their ex-girlfriend, no contact, which meant they had to find a new place to live. They found a friend who had a room, drove them to the psych appointment, which was miles away from campus. I did the things that they couldn't do for themselves, and they did, they did everything else. Now, the, the, the kid that they decided that had a room available was also the person who supplied them with drugs. Okay, my feeling was, I don't want you living there. You're just going to get in trouble again if you're living with this kid. Right? I'm sure you're mm-hmm. nodding your head, yes, right? Yes, yes. You right, totally right. get this, right? Totally get it. But I also knew that it wasn't my decision to make. You know, this kid's, what, 19, 20, something like that. They're theoretically adult. Whatever I think about whether they're an adult or not, <laughs> they're legally an adult. I'm going to fly away. I'm going to come back to, to Michigan from Arizona. And so I really don't, I don't have control over this. And I don't want to go find them a place to live. And so I, I said, I don't like this decision, but it is your decision. And I hear echoes of that kind of thing in what you're saying as well. Absolutely. There's a couple things that I really like about your story. You know, the first of all, just that you, you know, you showed up and you were in the moment, you know, just really being to be present with your uh, child, your adult child, and, and the clarity that you, you really kind of knew, you could tell, like, what am, am I doing? You had that question in your mind. You could be clear. Am I doing for him what he can do for himself, or am I doing for him what he, he cannot do for himself? I want to say some of that clarity came in retrospect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and there there was a relapse moment in there, an Al-Anon slip, if you will, yeah. where we hadn't heard from the counselor on campus. And I think it was Saturday or Sunday, I, I called her office phone and said, hey, you said you were going to tell us by Friday what's up, and we haven't heard what's up. I think she was professional enough to ignore that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I did have a little slip, but... The other thing that I'm reminded of, too, that I came to, you know, is in terms of what I do have control over, you know, with my son is my time and my money. So I can decide what I'm going to spend my money on. You know, am I going to spend it on an apartment for him while he's still using or am I not? And I think the other thing is that you know, the other thing about your story, too, Spencer, is just this idea of sort of having faith that you'll figure it out as you go along. This is like the whole right. concept of right. faith takes practice, that it, it you know, it's just one, yeah. one step at a time to try to really, again, sort of be present, be in the moment, and have faith that when you need to know what you need to know, you will know it. Mm. For me, that felt true. It took me a while to... <laughs> to accept what I needed to know, but <laughs> I got there. Yeah. You look like you want to say something, Mary. Ellen just said what I was thinking about having faith. Yes. Have faith in the moment that you're in, that right. you're going to do okay. That will usually calm things right down for me when I run into some sort of issue with my son or anywhere else, mm-hmm. actually. Working a good program and having... A conscious contact with your higher power and making 
sure you make time for that. You know, it's, it's not just like, oh, it's just always there. It takes work. It takes prayer and meditation to get to the place where you can be calm in those moments. Or you can note, I mean, for me, the another really important thing that Al-Anon gave me was the gift of asking for help because I'm a helper. That is literally my job, right? <laughs> I am in the helping profession, as they say. <laughs> and, and it would be really interesting to see a survey of how many there are how many people <laughs> in Al-Anon are in, in a helping profession, yeah. a social worker, a yeah. nurse, a teacher, Something yeah, like some that. of our natural inclinations, our codependency. I'm not in the helping profession. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So around the table, we have one yes, one no, and one sort of. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I started out as a teacher, uh, and, and I still do some teaching. But damn, I want to help. Okay. <laughs> I remember being in a meeting once, and people, as they were sharing around, were talking about what they were struggling with. And it came around to me, and I said, I know I belong here because I want to fix every single one of your problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I like to close with a question about what would you say to somebody who's new to Al-Anon and has come because they're struggling with their child who is having a problem. Let's just say having a problem. Maybe, you know, we don't know addict or alcoholic yet, or we're not willing to admit it. Having a problem with drugs or alcohol. Uh, You probably have found yourself in this place in a meeting. What what, what would you say? You're not alone. You know, I think that's the biggest thing. You're not alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say you've come to the right place Mm -hmm. to take care of yourself. This is a program for you to make yourself stronger. And that is the best thing that you can do for your loved ones. Yeah, as ironic as it seems. I think you said you had a reading to close with. I do. I have the Al-Anon Promises. Oh, okay. I love this. Yeah, just as a reference for our, our listener, these are from the book From Survival to Recovery. And it's around page 270, depending which edition of the book you have. Right on. If we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. We will become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. Though we may never be perfect, continued spiritual progress will reveal to us our enormous potential. We will discover that we are both worthy of love and loving. We will love others without losing ourselves and will learn to accept love in return. Our sight, once clouded and confused, will clear and we will be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. Courage and fellowship will replace fear. We will be able to risk failure to develop new hidden talents. Our lives, no matter how battered and degraded, will yield hope to share with others. We will begin to feel and will come to know the vastness of our emotions, but we will not be slaves to them. Our secrets will no longer bind us in shame. As we gain the ability to forgive ourselves, our families, and the world, our choices will expand. With dignity, we will stand for ourselves, but not against our fellows. Serenity and peace will have meaning for us as we allow our lives and the lives of those we love 
to flow day by day with God's ease, balance, and grace. No longer terrified, we will discover we are free to delight in life's paradox, mystery, and awe. We will laugh more. Fear will be replaced by faith, and gratitude will come naturally as we realize our higher power is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you. I love that reading. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives. Mary sent a a playlist, which she sent you titled Acceptance, and you suggested three songs from that playlist that are maybe most relevant to this topic. Uh, And I think the first one you suggested is Leave You in the Hands of the Lord by the original Five Blind Boys of Alabama. You want to say a little bit about why that's on your playlist and why you feel it relates to being a parent? Because the message in the song is, I'm going to leave you in in the hands of the Lord. And that was my first sign of being becoming healthy, is that I I broke from the thought that I was in, in charge of my son's outcomes and that I had to hand him over to the Lord uh, of his choosing. <laughs> That's right. That is the difficult part. Right. Their higher power may not be ours. Thank you for that. And you can um, listen to this. I'll have a link to a YouTube video on the website at therecovery.show slash 254. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How are we using the principles of this program in our daily lives and in our meetings? And it's actually been a couple of weeks since the last time I recorded a podcast. I had had surgery and, and recovery took a lot of energy out of me. And then I got a cold. Last weekend when I would have recorded an episode, I was just lying flat on my back, letting my nose drain and I was like, why? Why? <laughs> I'm I'm 60-something. I'm not supposed to get cold anymore, <laughs> right? Yeah, so acceptance, not so much there. What I had acceptance of was I was not going to record a podcast episode. I was released by my doctor to go back to work after two weeks um, after surgery. I don't do strenuous work. I'm a typing all day and, and talking in meetings. And and they said, just don't lift anything more than 10 pounds with your left arm for the next couple of weeks, at least. And I, I said, yeah, I'm able to do that. Also, since I was no longer taking those wonderful opiates, I was able to drive again. They weren't so wonderful, actually, but I think they did, did help uh, more than the Tylenol. Part of my life, part of using the principles of recovery in my life has just been accepting that I am where I am and I have... There are things I can do. There are things I can't do. I've been running for a while and ran 5K for the first time in my life this spring. I haven't been running because it the jogging, the you know, shocks is it, my muscles in my neck are still recovering, and they said, "Don't do that." And I'm like, "Okay, I can't do that. I really want to because I'm actually feeling that out of breath thing again, and I don't like it." It's why I started running in the first place. I don't like feeling out of breath, like when I'm going upstairs, okay? But it is, you know, I can only do what I can only do. And if I try to push it too hard, then it'll actually take longer. And this is something else that we, you know, we we understand that the process takes as what it takes. And if we try to force it, it, it actually doesn't help. And it, it hurts. 
Yesterday, I went to a meeting, in my Saturday meeting, third Saturday of the month, so we have an optional table that we're studying the traditions. And the tradition of the month is Tradition 7, which is about being fully self-supporting through our own contributions. And I picked up a reading from the book, the green book with the tree. What's it called? Oh, yeah. We we were Uh, working out of that one. Oh, Reaching for Personal Freedom, I think, is the title of the book. Yeah. And there was a reading about how Tradition 7 reminded this person that, I'll try to paraphrase the story very quickly. She's Her adult daughter went back to school, doesn't have enough money to live on her own, doesn't want to live with a roommate, wants to move in with her and her husband. She doesn't this, is want epi- her adult- this is an episode I just saw on Girls. Yeah. She <laughs> does not want her adult daughter to move yeah. into their small condo, right? It would really yeah. like you know have a negative <laughs> impact on their life. I actually relate to this because one of our kids quit a job to go to a startup where there's no money yet and was thinking about moving from Colorado back to Ann Arbor during this interim while they were getting this business going and 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 living with us and and said, would that be okay? And my wife said, sure. And I was like, um, I need to think about that. And this is something, again, the program has taught me, right? I mean, I was pretty sure I didn't want them moving in, but I didn't know how to say it. And I really, I really did have to think about it. And, and so I don't have to say right away, right? Awareness, acceptance, action. I don't have to jump straight to action. I'm aware of this feeling that I do not want this kid back in my house, this 27-year-old kid, okay? But I'm not ready to know what the right action is. So anyway, so in this reading, the woman says, and after some prayer and conversation with my sponsor, et cetera, I decided that I had to tell my daughter, no, that I, there, she has options just because she doesn't like her options does not obligate me to, you know, bend my life out of shape. And that's not exactly the way she said it. And that, you know, her daughter needs to be fully self-supporting. Right. And I connected this to a situation in, in my life that I don't think I'm going to detail here that where there are people who are asking for help, asking my wife for help. And she is giving some amount of help. And I'm not sure I agree with that. And what I said in the meeting yesterday was, I really want my wife to read this. <laughs> but my part is that if I don't agree with the decision that my wife makes when somebody asks her for help, it's my responsibility to speak up and say, I don't agree with it and why I don't agree with it. It's not my responsibility to make her change her mind. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting experience going through this I really connect with this reading. I really want my wife to read it. But this program's about me. So what is it that I can do that I learned from studying this tradition today? Every time I look at it, I learn something new, right? I, I'm sure you've had this experience, right? You read the literature and you say, that sentence wasn't there before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this book that I've had for 15 years, they, they stuck a new sentence in the middle well, of the I, book. Somehow, I had right? that experience preparing because I there is that line, faith takes practice that I clung to so much. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that it's in two different places in the courage to change until today. <laughs> Found it twice. There we go. Um, so so that's a little bit of, of how I'm, I'm experiencing recovery in my life right now. How about uh, Mary? I love the term living life on life's terms that I've picked up in the Al-Anon rooms. I've gone through some drama in my workplace, and I've had to really embrace that 
I am living life on life's terms right now and have faith that everything will work out for me. Uh, if it doesn't, I, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I can live in the present moment and I can just, what can I offer today? And I say a prayer, you know, the third step prayer when I walk in the door every day, you know, what's your will for me, God? And can, can you make sure that I stay out of my own way? I like that expression of that prayer. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, another, the, I think it's the seven-step prayer. Help me to know who tr- who I truly am, to live my life accordingly, and to refrain from diverting my time, energy, and interest into my character defects. Ooh. <laughs> so, yeah, I yeah. Do that one. But I think, you know, every day I have a practice. I'm a, I love my routine. So, you know, I do... I mean, I'm not perfect at it, so I don't know that it's, you know, every day, every day, every day. But most days I pray. Most days I meditate. Most days I read the, you know, out of the daily reader. I go to, you know, at least one Al-Anon meeting a week. I have a sponsor that I meet with regularly. I have sponsees. We're meeting now in another small group. I think because, you know, to achieve the promises, it takes practices. It's, you know, it's like being able to run a 5K. You can't just, you know, there's a process, you know, couch to 5K or, you know, you don't just do it. Plus, we're human beings. And I think that these, a lot of these concepts, we we talk about it being a spiritual program. And for me, spirituality is, it is about connecting with a higher power, but it's also about concepts like acceptance and love and humility and surrender. And yeah, and this concept of being fully present. And these are all, you know, my daily Al-Anon practices help me achieve these spiritual concepts better. You know, I don't know that I would ever be able to work towards, you know, and I want to I want to accept my son for all of who he is. You know, I want to see his strengths and I want to give him the dignity of having his struggle and his path and his, because I've had mine and we grow from them, right? I mean, a lot of, kind of like what you were saying, Mary, like the sort of the crack in the darkness that it's out of our darkness or out of those dark clouds, crystal rain can flow. Those painful Moments are where we find can find faith and humility and love and acceptance. Thank you. Thank you. We welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. Please leave a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or your questions. Ellen, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. That number again? 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on this website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of parents of teen addict or alcoholic. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Mary, 
Where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Our website, therecovery.show, has all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, and links to the readings and music we talk about. We've also got some links to other recovery podcasts and websites. And again, we're going to come back to your playlist, Mary. And uh, the second song that you thought uh, related here for you is Take Five by Dave Brubeck. This is sort of a first for us. I think it's the first time I've had just a purely instrumental piece of music uh, suggested. Well, as the title of the song suggests, (laughs) before I react to anything that's going on, especially with my son, I need to take take time out and assess the situation, talk to my sponsor, maybe do some reading or talk with a therapist if it's something that I think is going to be affecting either myself or my son in a negative way. So you need to take five. I need to take five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, when I saw that, I thought, oh, it's, yeah, I totally got why it's there. But yeah, because you know, <laughs> it does. And it has that kind of just a little bit of chillax to the whole the whole piece too, right? Right. We got some email. Since it's been a few weeks, we got a fair amount of email. If you could read the short note from Christiane. Christiane says, Thank you for your show. I am new to Al-Anon, but not loving an alcoholic. I look forward to more episodes. I, I relate, not loving an alcoholic. I mean, I don't know about you. I definitely felt non-loving feelings towards the person that I call my loved one. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> not loving the situation for sure. Dave writes, Linda L. is episode 240, really good. Another good one is Tom W. episode 250. And I just say that both of those were open talks that I published in, in those episodes Many other great episodes. I laughed several times to Tom W. I listen to your podcast often. Your podcast is the only Al-Anon one I share to others. It's the best I've found for Al-Anon. In Helena, Montana, a few months back, I volunteered to be the treasurer of our Super Sunday Al-Anon group, one of about a dozen AA and Al-Anon active groups in town. This means from time to time I buy newcomer packets and books for our group. I love my program, which includes your podcast so much that soon I'll volunteer two hours every Saturday in our one bookstore for AA and Al-Anon. The next nearest bookstore, it might be a two-hour drive. I just want to help someone else the way I've been helped by Al-Anon. I've seen so many visitors who don't stay but show up once and spew their terrible story. They don't keep coming back. I had my bad story, but I've turned it around by coming back twice a week. I also have a sponsor and a half dozen conference-approved literature books. I listen to some of your podcasts, then listen to them again, and sometimes again, the same podcast after that. They're truly a blessing, as are you. You're doing great work. A little over a year ago, this program changed my life, and I'll never look back on the lifestyle I am so lucky to have left behind. I'll leave you with one tidbit I've learned mostly from Elanon about trust. This is one way in which my Elanon work has helped me outside the program. Recently, a friend and I were discussing a third entity. My friend said, do you trust them? My friend implied, do I trust them to be correct? About half the time, this third entity makes big mistakes. I took a breath, looked my friend in the eye and said, I trust they won't change. My friend laughed deeply. Their face reddened. A healthy laugh. 
I know I'd be a lot less healthy without Al-Anon. Whether it's addicts who will always be a part of my daughter's life or the outside entities who I can trust to make lots of mistakes, Al-Anon's lantern lights my steps on my journey. I feel lucky I found your podcast. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you, Dave, for the for the all the kind words. And that is such a great concept. I trust they won't change. I trust that that person that I love, the person that I need to depend on for something, will continue to be themselves. They won't necessarily be who I want them to be. I, I want to say what I liked about what Dave said and where he says, I just want to help someone else the way I've been helping Alan on. I think that's why we're here today. You know, it's just people helping people. And, I, uh, you know, more to you, Dave. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And and Dave, I hope that um, maybe this episode spoke to you. You talk about your daughter. So don't know what brought you to Al-Anon, but maybe you connect with something. Uh, can you read the letter from Carrie, Mary? Hi, Spencer. First, I want to tell you how much I love your show. I was very hesitant to go to Al-Anon, and it was your podcast that gave me the motivation and inspiration to go to my first meeting in early May. My question is, how do I navigate life with an unemployed alcoholic spouse that is not motivated to seek employment or recovery? I'm struggling to figure out what is enabling him and what is financial abuse. He's currently sober, but does not attend AA or any other recovery work. Any tips on boundaries on how not to be an enabler in this situation would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, Carrie. Yeah, I'm not going to give advice because we don't give advice. I will say that when my spouse first came into recovery, she was not able to work for a while because she was really focusing on on getting well. I really wanted her to be contributing to our income. And in fact, when it became clear that we were not going to have her income, it scared the heck out of me because I had no idea how we were going to manage. You know, in our case, she actually has not gotten back to the place that she'd like to be in terms of employment. And I'm okay. I realized that my fears were, what did you say, you, Mary? You said something about how, you know, you're always living in the worst possible scenario. Worst case scenario disease. Yeah, I I definitely have that that worst case scenario disease. And I think the only thing that I would say is that I had to come to acceptance of the situation that we had. And if I was not able to accept that situation, then I would need to figure out what I needed to do. Because I can't make people give her a job. And and certainly early in her recovery, I I couldn't even make her want to get a job. So I had to be okay with that or I had to do something different. I was going to say, you know, that's why we have Al-Anon because living with an alcoholic is too much for most of us. We become irritable and unreasonable without knowing it. We all need help in figuring these things out. Just like you said, Spencer, I don't have any advice except that for me, just, again, that practicing having faith in the program, that if I keep showing up, if I keep asking for help, if I keep talking about what's going on, you know, if I keep praying and meditating and doing all the things that I do, that I will figure out at some point, you know, what what it is that I need for my to do for myself. You know, like getting to the point with my son where I could say, you know, I can't support you financially anymore. 
well, we can't support you financially anymore. But really, again, being able to do that in a really loving manner so that I didn't have any, whatever he decided was what he decided. And it's the grace of of a power greater than myself that he decided to pursue treatment. But even if he decided not to, I was at that place where I could accept whatever was his decision and I would still love him. Mm-hmm. But I could never have done that without Alan. Oh my God, no. <laughs> I have a friend in the program who... I think her husband was still drinking at this point. They had split up the bills and he was supposed to take care of certain bills and she was supposed to take care of certain bills. She felt he wasn't taking care of his bills, right? I mean, he had a job and so on, but but he just, he would pay him later and I forget to pay him or whatever. And she asked me for suggestions. I'm not going to say advice, right? And I suggested that, and this coming out of my own experience where I needed to decide for myself what things were important to me and what things were not important if the other person in my life didn't pick them up. And I said, ask yourself, if the cable bill doesn't get paid, does that hurt you enough that you want to take it over, that you want to enable this behavior of not paying the cable bill? I think that helped her to make some decisions. And and I think that's all I'm going to say about it. (laughs) Can you read the note from Julie, Ellen? Julie sends thanks. Thank you for your podcast. I just discovered you a month ago. I am located in Akron, Ohio, the birthplace of AA. I have continuous sobriety in AA since 1988, and I've been in AFG. I'm just going to side note that must be Alan on Family Group. Yes. Since 2000. AA arrested my own alcoholism, but it took AFG for me to cope with the alcoholism of those surrounding me. I've tried podcasts in AFG since podcasts came into existence. Yours is the first I found that makes me comfortable. Sometimes being a crusty old timer has its downside. You do a beautiful job of sharing your own experience, but representing AFG principles at the same time while not being an AFG meeting. That is a very delicate balancing act that you execute with perfection. Thank you for being so conscientious in fellowship, Julie GW. I have no words. <laughs> yeah, a beautiful note, yeah. Christiane left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. My name is Christiane. Um, I just joined Ellen on a few months ago and have just begun starting uh, face-to-face meetings. My husband is an alcoholic, and the biggest struggle I'm facing right now in my marriage is lack of intimacy. He doesn't even want to sleep in the same bed as me. And I know he loves me and hugs me and tells me he loves me and gives me a kiss every morning and good night and but has said in the past he just doesn't want to be interested in being intimate with me. And I just wanted to see if anybody had any ideas if that's typical for an alcoholic or is that something that happens in other marriages because it's very difficult for me to understand and it it drains on my self-esteem and my self-worth. So I would appreciate any feedback or insight anyone would have on the topic. Thank you so much for the podcast. I'm really, really enjoying it and learning so much. God bless all of you. Thank you. Bye-bye. I think my experience is that I know that when my wife was drinking, I had trouble being intimate with her. It didn't have to do with her, but it did have to do with her behavior. I think this is something that you may find easier if you you can you know sit down face-to-face with somebody else and, and talk about it. Also, I will say, 
that Elanon has just come out with a new book. I think the title is Intimacy and Alcoholic Relations or something like that. It's a brand new book. And I know that our local meetings have ordered copies. They haven't come in yet. A friend of mine showed up at a meeting with one because she had been to the international convention and bought it there. Just came out at the beginning of July. There's a lot of sharings in there from people in the program. And I'm I'm just going to guess that there's more than one person in there who has faced this and has shared about it in the book. So you might want to see if you can you can find that book. I don't know. You have anything? Oh, just what you said, that I think that she's not alone. There's a whole book now. Yes. And that even here in uh, Ann Arbor, we've had special Al-Anon meetings about, or special like uh, open talks about right. intimacy. Yes, we did. And that actually, that happened because some of our members came back from the AA International Convention, what, three years ago, I think, or four years ago, that was in Atlanta. And there had been a panel about intimacy and alcoholic, or the effect of alcoholism on intimacy and and sexual relationships. And these friends had realized that this is something we so often don't talk about. Although we lay out all kinds of things in our meetings, the question of intimacy often is one that we don't talk about, even though it's so affected by the disease. These friends put together a panel about three years ago for, for Valentine's Day week. They had it in Valentine's Day week just, you know, because we've done it every year since then. People always say, wow, this is, this is great. And I think that some people are putting together sort of like a, a, a study group for the book they're trying to figure out, you know, time and place and stuff like that. And hopefully I'll be hearing more about that as, as they get it together, because I think that's, that's a wonderful opportunity um, to talk about something we don't talk about a lot, because it's awkward and, and scary and vulnerable. Maria sent a note uh, ask, asking actually about the topic we just covered today. Hello, my husband and I have a 17-year-old alcoholic son. It is difficult to find podcasts or Al-Anon meetings that speak to the issues of a teenage alcoholic son. Do you have any old podcasts or would you ever add that? Thanks, Maria. Well, here you go, Maria. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hope Maria gets this yeah. one. Right. <laughs> and, and also, episode 22, we had uh, four parents talk about their experience as parent of, of alcoholic or addict. I know one of, one of the people in that one, their, their child is in their 40s and is still struggling. It's not something that I have personal experience with, and so I'm really glad to have Ellen and Mary here today to, to share your experience. I think it's something we, we probably want to come back to. You want to read uh, Kate's note, Mary? Sure. Kate shares some thanks and experience. Dear Spencer, I have been listening to your podcast for about three months now. A friend in Al-Anon recommended it to me when I had been in the program for only a few weeks. As I was listening to past episodes on a long car ride today, I learned more about your background and realized we have quite a bit in common. I, too, was a university professor for four years, and I recently started back again this fall. Decided to go back to my true calling, that of a junior high mathematics teacher. I've really struggled with this decision over the past few months because I've been so worried about what people will think of me. Working in the field of mathematics as a woman, I constantly felt as though I had to prove that I was smart enough to be in the room. I noticed that this feeling intensified as I continued on in graduate school and while earning my terminal degree. 
It was so refreshing to hear about your decision to leave post-secondary education and hear that you feel satisfied with your current life's work. I have also noticed that this idea of being smart is coming up during my recovery. I'm so afraid that people will think I'm stupid because I didn't know my husband had relapsed or that people will wonder why in the world I'm willing to stay with him. You speak so matter-of-factly about your wife's illness and your willingness to wait and see. I am also inspired by this part of your story. Thanks so much for all that you do, Kate D. And thank you, Kate. That feeling of I'm not good enough because I didn't know, because I didn't see what was happening. Oh, yeah. That was big for me, especially because I was, you know, in the field. (laughs) Yes, yes. It was the acceptance. I mean, you know, it's the awareness is one thing. The acceptance is a whole nother layer. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to speak one thing to Kate, because my dad was a math professor, and he had female, you know, students. And I just want to say I'm grateful and want to speak some words of encouragement to follow your passion, because that certainly was his passion. And, you know, that was one of a legacy that he left to me was was to do what you love. I think that's great that you figured out what you really want to do. Nancy left a comment on the show notes for episode 253, which is the one where Pat and I talked about denial. First, let me say, Spencer, belatedly, that you have my sympathy for the recent loss of your dear dog. I have thought of you often about that. I know personally the pain of losing a beloved pet. I hope you can find peace with your grief over him. Please know, too, that you're in my thoughts as you recover from surgery. As a nurse myself, I also appreciated your positive comments on the nursing staff and their care. We do care, and caring for our patients' well-being is why we are there. I always feel that my job as a nurse is one way I can practice these principles in all my affairs. Keep it simple. Nancy D. Thanks for your kind words there. And yeah, I'm getting over getting over it. He was a greyhound, and we discovered greyhounds 12 or 13 years ago. There's an art fair in town this, this weekend, and there's a section of nonprofits and, and at in the in the nonprofits that year there was a group that does Greyhound Rescue. And so they're sitting there and they had a you know, they had a dog with them and they had lots of pictures of, you know, dogs you could rescue and I just fell in love with the with with the breed. And that's how we ended up getting the dog we got. And so they're not there this year. They haven't been there for the past few years. I think they, they figured it haven't dogs out in the July heat on the on the street, even though they had a little cover over them was, you know, not the best thing for the dog. But I think about it every year. And this year is like, yeah, it's sad. But, you know, we had him. And I think this is, this is, a, this may be something about that I've learned in the program too, is that I can be sad about something that's gone away, but I also can have gratitude that it was there. That applies to all kinds of things in my life. All right, Mary, we got one more from Francesca. Okay, Francesca wrote, Hi, Spencer. My family and I are on vacation, and I've been having a hard time with expectations. Why aren't my kids out exploring this beautiful land that is so different from our regular urban existence? I was just coming to a place of acceptance that my kids aren't necessarily going to want to do all the things I want them to do on vacation. We can each do things we want to do, and that's okay. We were hiking yesterday morning when we came across this beautiful moth hanging out on a rock. Of course, it made me think of the recovery show. 
and it reminded me that recovery is all around me all the time. Thanks again for your service. I love the show and look forward to Mondays because of it. Best, Francesca. And Francesca did send a photo of the of the moth that we use as a logo for the show that she found on a rock in the woods somewhere. It's a Luna moth. They do exist in the wild in, in the U.S., so keep your eyes open. And they're 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 oh. big. They're like two and a half, three inches across. Um, so I'll I'll put the photo in the uh, in the notes at the recovery show slash two fifty four if you want to see it. This one's lost one of its little like tail jiggies, so it's a little asymmetrical, but still beautiful. Thanks for the photo, Francesca. I appreciate it. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to the recovery show, but we do have expenses. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Christiane, Susan, Mary, and Heather did. We have put together a list of recovery-related books, and I need to put a link to that intimacy book in there, too. Click on the books link in the menu at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. If you order it from Al-Anon, which the intimacy book, we, you would be ordering it directly from Al-Anon. Uh, we don't get a commission on that because Al-Anon deserves all the money. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to therecovery.show or just listening to us. We are here for you. And the third song from your playlist that you chose, Mary, is Let It Be by the Beatles. I guess it's kind of obvious, but you have a few words to say about that. I do. Yeah. Oftentimes when I am worked up or, and I do have a routine too, where I journal and that is how I make conscious contact with my higher power. And a lot of times I will be writing away and I'll be worked up on something. And the message that usually comes out is just let go of this. Let, let it be. Things will work out. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.